0: Hello and welcome to edition number 1991 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording as usual in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 14th of December. My name is Byron Russell and I edited this edition. Our readers today are Alison Granger, Anne Crawford, Andrew Dilger and Nigel James. Our master at the mixing desk today is Eric Imsen whose technical skills will make this recording and its online edition possible. This week, we're very grateful to have news items from the Whitney Gazette and the Oxford Times. In the second part of this edition, we'll hear about stars of the pop world coming to Woodstock and about intrepid charity champions in Oxfordshire. But first of all, there's big news about a solar farm development on the edge of Whitney, And that's read to us by Andrew, who, I have to say, this evening is wearing an extremely natty pair of Christmas pudding sunglasses to get us in the festive mood. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Solar farm plan close to Edge of Whitney is rejected. Plans to build a solar farm capable of powering 15,000 homes have been rejected by councillors. Developers JBM Solar said Quarry Solar Farm on land between Hayley, Poffley End and New Yat would help the district reach a net zero target. But West Oxfordshire district councillors voted unanimously against the scheme, saying its detrimental effect on the historic rural landscape and the valuable recreational area would outweigh the benefits. The authority also said the application lacked information on wildlife and biodiversity impact. The development was being proposed for University farmland in Whitney Road with a two-kilometre cable route to be connected to a substation in Whitney. The facility would have been accessed from New Yat Road. It would have occupied about 10% of the Haley Parish, according to its parish council. Councillors were also told the London-based energy firm had submitted a significant amount of extra information too late, leaving planning officers with no time to go through it. Project manager Bente Klein for JMB Solar told the committee, West Oxfordshire has declared both an ecological and climate emergency and pledged to become carbon neutral by 2030. Proposals like those in front of you today are crucial in achieving those targets. She said the solar farm would produce the equivalent electricity needs of 15,000 Oxfordshire homes. She said, in terms of community benefits, the community spaces the firm would create would be for the benefit of everyone, and Hayley Parish would receive £462,000 over the lifetime of the solar farm. Ward member for North Lee, Harry St John, raised concerns about construction traffic going through the village. 38 two-way movements in one day. Ms Klein said there would be eight HGVs a day, one movement towards the site and one away, and then 30 normal vehicles carrying personnel and labour to the site. Councillor Nick Leverton raised concerns about the two meter posts with wire deer fencing which would be erected around the ninety nine point six eight hectare two hundred and forty six acre site. He said Do we think that it is fitting for effectively the cotswolds for this area as big? Because I don't know. Green Party councillor Andrew Prosser said further information was needed on mitigations and what ongoing monitoring would be taking place at the site over its 30 to 40 year lifespan, particularly regarding skylarks. He said, birds which are protected don't just move from one site to the other. Mr St John added, if this is refused and then comes back, we need to get our heads around precisely what impact this is going to have. We all ought to be aware that there is another solar farm proposed at Ramsden, which is five or six fields away, let alone the massive solar farm on the Blenheim Estate. If we're not careful, this part of West Oxfordshire is going to be covered in solar panels. But Councillor Julian Cooper said the council is not opposed to solar farms on principle. He said... I think it's worth putting on record that we do have solar farms in West Oxfordshire. We have one in Barnard Gate and one on the other side of the road being developed. I have one in my ward in Tackley, right on the edge of the parish of Woodstock. There's one at Charlbury. So it is something that I would suggest this authority is not against. But this application is far too weak to vote for.
0: Thanks very much indeed Andrew and uh, now we have more news of planning but this time it's about a site where planning permission has been granted and that's in Aston. Over to you.
2: Thank you. Village dismay as work set to start on 40 new homes. Villagers have reacted with disappointment At news that work is set to start on 40 homes on a greenfield site in Aston. The plans for so called affordable homes sparked strong opposition from villagers and concerns from water pollution campaigners. As reported, they were approved by West Oxfordshire District Council. Affordable housing specialist Living Space and social housing provider Stonewater will build the houses off Coat Road in Aston. Land specialist Terra secured planning permission for the homes in August following an appeal. The inspector cited the need for affordable housing in the area and the significant shortfall in the West Oxfordshire District Council's five-year housing land supply as clear evidence of the housing need to justify the development. Terra, a sister company of living space, sold the site to to Stonewater. Construction work on site is expected to start next year. Over 200 letters of objection were received to the planning application for the scheme, which was also opposed by local councillors over infrastructure concerns. Windrush against sewage pollution, known as WASP, also suggested a condition that no development should begin until there is a necessary upgrade to foul drainage by Thames Water. Objecting to the scheme last year, Russell Laforte, chairman of Aston, Cote, Shifford and Chimney Parish Council, said, There's a very real risk that permanent harm will be inflicted upon our village in order to satisfy the short-term expediency of helping make good the catastrophic failure in District Council planning policy. A failure that has no no doubt delighted cynical developers, but dismayed besieged residents. This is a situation of the District Council's own making that should have been foreseen, and I worry that the residents of Aston may now pay the price. Living Space Housing said meeting the local demand for affordable housing was the main objective of 100% affordable housing development. It will include a variety of property types, ranging from two-bedroom bungalows to four-bedroom family homes, intending to cater to couples and families of different sizes. Paul Breen, Managing Director at Living Space, said... In designing this scheme, it was essential to ensure these homes would not only meet the proven lack of affordable housing in West Oxfordshire, but provide a complementary extension to the existing village here in Aston. The huge demand for these homes is also why we're pleased to get started on construction in the next few months. And I've no doubt this scheme will soon become another fantastic example of our enduring and successful relationship with Stonewater, whose team believe in providing quality homes that communities can be proud of just as much as we do. Each house will have a secure back garden and 40% of the total site area will be green space.
0: And so we move on um, from buildings going up to, unfortunately, buildings coming down. And uh, that's a news item that's going to be read to us about crumbling concrete in a school in Abingdon. And that comes from Nigel.
3: Yes, and this headline reads, College classroom is closed due to crumbling concrete. Abingdon and Whitney College has shut part of its buildings after finding uh, collapse-risk concrete. The college confirmed a small area of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, rack was identified in one of its buildings at the Whitney campus, causing one classroom to be closed. Department of Education, DFE, identified the college as one of 17 new cases, taking the total to 231 in England as of November the 27th. The college is operating as normal, and an assessment is currently being carried out by structural engineers. The spokesperson said... Following completion of surveys across all our campuses at the start of the academic year, we have identified one small area of rack in one of our buildings at our Whitney campus. As a result, we have closed one classroom and there's no impact on the experience of staff or students at Whitney and no risk to their safety. Last year, the DfE issued a questionnaire to responsible bodies for all schools in England to ask them to identify whether they suspected they had RAC. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan told MPs on the Education Select Committee that all responsible bodies of settings with buildings constructed in the target era have now been submitted. She said, so we have 100% of the questionnaires from the settings in the target era and that was the years that could have contained RAC. All the first surveys are complete. Ms Keegan told MPs on Wednesday that 231 currents currently have confirmed RAC. Now we do expect that there will be some more, because as we go back for follow-up survey work, we will identify a few more, she said. The Education Secretary added, there will only be probably a handful more cases, because it's definitely massively slowed down. The DfE's top official Permanent Secretary, Susan Ackland-Hood, told MPs on the committee that 41 settings have now temporary buildings on site. She said there will still be settings that have identified later in the process that need temporary buildings that won't have had them yet. There will also be settings that didn't need temporary buildings in order to get all pupils back into face-to-face education but might still benefit from some specialist units in order to make sure they can deliver the full curriculum. Ms Ackland-Hood added, we've got about 110 schools where we think uh, mitigation is the right approach rather than temporary buildings, and we've also got schools where it may be better for them to share facilities with nearby schools for things like science labs, because the lead time on specialist temporary units is long.
0: And now it's time for one last item in this first round. And it's about a certain news regular who will be familiar to all of you, I'm sure. Now, who could it possibly be? He's all yours, Anne. Yes, I
4: wonder. Jeremy Clarkson has shared a farmer's response criticising a Channel 4 programme pushing Make Beef the New Smoking. The Big British Beef Battle aired on Channel 4 on Friday 1st of December, and called on the public to eat chicken instead of beef as part of an effort to curb climate change, insisting the climate cost of beef is the highest of any foodstuff. Presented by Adi Depitun, the programme has been lambasted by farmers and others in the agricultural sector. Although Chadlington's a diddly squat farm owner, Mr Clarkson, did not directly respond, he did share a YouTube video from Harry's Farm, which claimed UK beef farmers are under attack. He also said British and Irish beef farmers should be celebrated in this country. The UK enjoys almost perfect growing conditions for uh, raising grass-fed beef. Yet the UK media constantly blame farmers for climate change. In this video, I explain why this is why this is and why the recent Channel 4 documentary t- entitled The Big British Beef Battle get it so sp- sp- spectacularly wrong. The program received a one-star review from The Guardian with TV critic Lucy Mangan describing it as stupid shouty and patronising Tony Goodyear spokesman for the Association of Independent Meat Suppliers added when the programme in question is described by the Guardian as shoddy and an insult I can only conclude that a period of absence from our TV screens resulted in this presenter taking Channel 4's cue to us their patsy in a conversation about beef farming and climate change, about which he clearly knows little. Give somebody a megaphone and you can almost guarantee that they will make a fool of themselves. Mr Clarkson is known for being the owner of Diddley Squat Farm that features on the beloved Clarkson Farm. Clarkson confirmed last week that the show had been renewed. Posting on its X account, formerly known as Twitter, Amazon Prime said it's been three series and we still cannot make the sheep collaborate for a simple announcement. Some confused fans sought clarification. So is this an announcement that Series 4 has been Commissioned, or have you all missed series three one user asked the first one amazon replied futia khan amazon studios head of unscripted in the uk said producer expectation was about to begin shooting season four very soon season three has wrapped and will stream next year Mr Clarkson posted a video on Instagram echoing Khan's comments. The fourth series of Clarkson Farm is coming, he said.
1: Even supermodels have their problems. The current worry of Kate Moss is all about bats. And the headline of this one is a bit of a tongue twister. Kate battles bats in party barn plan. Supermodel Kate Moss must make plans for late-night bats and barn owls before she can convert two outbuildings into a party barn and guest accommodation. The model, 50, was well known for partying, but left London to move to West Oxfordshire full-time in 2021. She bought the Grade 2 listed farmhouse in Little Farringdon near Lechlade in 2011, for £7.25 million, according to the Daily Mail. Ms Moss was given permission to convert the derelict stables and an outbuilding used as a studio storage and workshop in 2016, but work has not yet started. She proposes to convert the stables into an entertainment area with a lounge, cinema and 12-seat dining room. A small lean-to extension at the end will create a den and occasional sleeping space. There will be simply glazed screens between the existing posts and these will have shutter-style doors in front which can be closed when the building is not in use. The guest accommodation will have a billiard room. Aberley Design Limited states the external design will create an enhancement to the host Grade 2 listed building and to the village in general. In October, West Oxfordshire District Council gave consent to delay the deadline for an updated BAT survey and, if required, a revised BAT mitigation strategy until the start of above-ground works to allow ground works to begin. A report by CTM Wildlife said a survey of both buildings in July 2023 showed no signs of bats, however. The buildings and conditions mean the stables could be used by the protected brown long-eared bat, common pipistrelle and whiskered bat. Barn owls have also been found in the stables. WODC said pre-works a... Lighting design strategy must be submitted which will show where external lighting will be, including the type, so that it can be clearly demonstrated that areas to be lit will not disturb or prevent nocturnal species using their habitats. Ms Moss's wedding to rock star Jamie Hintz in 2011 attracted a host of A-list guests with performances from Shirley Bassey, Snoop Dogg, Iggy Pop, Brian Ferry and Beth Ditto. Fashion designers Stella McCartney and the late Vivienne Westwood, supermodel Naomi Campbell, primal scream rocker Bobby Gillespie, actor Jude Law and his ex-wife Sadie Frost were also seen at St. Peter's Church in Southrop. But, approaching her 50th birthday this year, Ms Moss told the Sunday Times that since she left London, she practices transcendental meditation and goes wild swimming in a secret place only the local villagers use. The star, whose daughter Lila is also a model, has founded her own wellness brand called Cosmos.
2: Thames finances fear as profits dip, And debts rise. Troubled utility giant Thames Water has warned that its turnaround will take time as it revealed its profits have more than halved and it faces an increase in its huge debts. The company, which is responsible for water supply and wastewater treatment in Oxfordshire, reported a 54% drop in pre tax profits to £246.4 million. In the six months to September 30th, revenues rose 12% to £1.3 billion, but it spent a record £1 billion on improving its network. The results also revealed its debt pile swelled by 7% to £14.7 billion. Concern over Thames' financial strength earlier this year led to speculation it might be taken over by the government. It was revealed in June that the government was drawing up contingency plans for an emergency nationalisation should Thames water collapse as concerns grew that it would buckle under the weight of its massive debts. Thames water shareholders agreed in the summer to inject £750 but that is contingent on the regulator agreeing to bill increases of 40% by 2030. The group is also set for a possible investigation into whether it misled MPs earlier this year over the state of its finances and support from investors. Last year, the company had asked investors for £1 billion. Interim bosses said... Turning around Thames will take time. We simply can't do everything that our customers and stakeholders wish to see at a pace and for a price that everyone would like. We will continue to make the tough choices required to deliver what matters most to our customers and the environment. A Thames Water Utilities spokesman added, We're in a robust financial position and are extremely fortunate to have such supportive shareholders. Shareholders have also acknowledged the need for around another 2.5 billion in equity investment needed in future regulatory periods, the group added. The water supplier's former boss, Sarah Bentley, stepped down abruptly in June amid concerns over the firm's financial security. The company, whose ownership structure has been revealed to comprise a highly complicated web of firms behind the supplier, has been saddled with debts since privatisation and now faces higher interest on this debt, as some of it is linked to the rate of inflation. Auditors of Kemble Water Holdings, the main company behind Thames Water, have also warned it could run out of money by next April if shareholders don't pump in more cash. PricewaterhouseCoopers warned, in accounts published last week at Companies House, that there is a material uncertainty over its future, amid worries there are no plans in place over how to refinance a one hundred and million loan at one of its subsidiary companies.
3: The next item is headlined... Dad's battle with cancer in plea for research funding. An Oxfordshire dad is pleading for more brain tumour research funding after undergoing a third operation. Craig Gleach, a Whitney resident diagnosed with brain cancer in May 2022, initially experienced recurring severe headaches. The 36-year-old's symptoms were wrongly diagnosed as depression, weeks after the news that he and his wife, Janin, were expecting their second child. Mr Leach said, The doctor hinted I may not be as happy about the news of another baby as I was making out. However, Janin and I had been trying. I was over the moon, which made the suggestion that I was suffering from depression hard to believe. Following a CT scan, revealing a fist-sized brain mass, Mr. Leach underwent a nine-hour debulking surgery and was diagnosed with a grade 3 astrocytoma. This type of cancer typically gives patients a three- to five-year survival prognosis from diagnosis date. He added, I was terrified. I would never see my family again and I said goodbye to Luca, who was two at the time, and I didn't know if I'd make it through the procedure to see my unborn baby. Doctors fitted a shunt to drain c- uh, cerebral fluid buildup on his brain, followed by six weeks of radiotherapy. During his second chemotherapy cycle in November 22, Mr Leach's wife gave birth to their second son, Rory. However, last month saw more devastating news for Mr Leach. His tumour had grown. On December the 1st, he endured another operation. He said... I've been told that I will need more chemo, but I'm taking each day as it comes. We're also in the process of looking at private immunotherapy treatment available only overseas, which we are funding ourselves. Mr Leach's plight has driven him to raise £6,000 for charity Brain Tumour Research. His story is showcased in the charity's Advent Appeal, aiming to inspire donations to help find a cure for patients like him. Brain tumours claim more lives of children and people under the age of 40 than any other cancer, yet it has received only 1% of national cancer research spending since 2002. Mel Tiley, Community Development Manager at Brain Tumour Research, said, We're incredibly grateful to Craig for sharing his story and wish him well in his recovery and ongoing treatment. This December, please help us raise awareness of the indiscriminate nature of brain tumours, raise vital funds to get us closer to our vision of a cure and bring hope to everyone affected by this devastating disease. Brain tumour research also campaigns for more investment into brain tumour research from the government and bigger cancer charities, aiming for a national annual expenditure of £35 million. And there are two photographs, one of uh, Craig Leach with his wife and two children, in front of the Red Arrows, and the second one taken during the Oxford Half Marathon in 2021. And must say, in both of those photographs, uh, Craig Leach is looking exceedingly well. A drug dealer was caught
4: selling drugs at an Oxfordshire festival after asking an off-duty police officer if he would like some special treats. Alfin Forster approached the officer on August the 22nd last year, at the Wilderness Festival in Cornbury Park, where headliners, underworld, years and years, and jungle were performed. After asking the officer if he would like some special treats, he took a photograph of the 27-year-old, who was later identified by an off-duty um, officer's and searched at the four-day event. She was caught with four types of Class A drugs, including ketamine, MDMA, LSD and Valium. Forster later pleaded guilty to four counts of possessing with intent to supply. Sentencing the young woman in a suspended two-year prison sentence on Monday, December eleventh, Judge Martin Lamb said, Given your unhappy family history of drug use you of all people should know what misery drug dealing causes and there you were at wilderness festival peddling drugs where other people's children are so a starting point of four and a half years shouldn't surprise you i can take into account that you haven't ever done anything like this before and you have started to address your drug use since you uh, since you did what you did. And you've managed to keep yourself out of trouble for a period of over a year. Opening the case, prosecutor Helen Rogers said Forster was found with about 1,600 worth of drugs as well as a mobile phone with messages from people asking if she would supply pills or LSD. She added the 27-year-old is of previous good character. Defending Forster, Defence Barrister George Joseph said that since her arrest she has been receiving therapy to address her her own drug use and has full-time employment. He added that her mother has a long-term illness and forced helps with the cooking, cleaning and her general care. The likelihood is this will be the first and the last time she will be in court, said Mr Joseph. She's now free from drug use, has been for quite a significant time now, and she's done all that without support from others. As well as her suspended sentence... Forster of Denport Place, Worthing, West Sussex, will need to complete 20 rehabilitation activity days and will have to pay £425 in court fees. She will also be made subject to a curfew from 10pm to 5am, with the exception of emergency care for her mother.
1: And the headline of this one is... A LACK OF CASHIERS AT A REVAMPED SUPERSTORE Shoppers have been disappointed at the lack of cashiers at a refurbished supermarket, meaning self-checkout was the only reasonable option. Sainsbury's Whitney reopened at the end of November following a refurbishment. New lines in the store include a kitchen deli, new cheese and charcuterie displays and an upgraded sushi counter. There is also a new Starbucks cafe inside the supermarket. The refurbishment also included the reformatting of the checkout offer. There are now just six serviced tills, alongside 23 self-service tills. There are eight self-checkouts for customers doing a smaller shop and using baskets, nine larger self-checkouts for customers doing a larger shop using trolleys, and six smart shop checkouts. It proved a divisive issue on social media. While some shoppers preferred to scan their own shopping, others were mildly frustrated to find there were so few cashiers available. One joked on Whitney Spotted Facebook page, I got kicked out of Sainsbury's this morning. The manager asked me what I was doing in the break room. You don't even work here. I said, I just finished using the self-checkout, so clearly I do. The post received 644 likes. Another customer posted, that's quite right. Ask to join the pension scheme also. And the third said, you should have asked for your staff discount. Mind you, they will be charging you to park next. Also hinting that the supermarket was saving money on staff which may not be passed on, one poster said, The self-serve checkouts are great. My shopping bill has reduced dramatically. However, another social media user welcomed the self-scan option, as long as it works properly. She said, I am not a massively chatty person, and I have a busy full-time job. I am not someone whose only social contact is via shopping, but there is often one poor person trying to whiz around fixing the scanning issues. Sainsbury's said the changes to the store have not impacted the number of staff, as its colleagues are multi-skilled and have received training to become expert in different departments around the store. It said it regularly reviews the services available in all its stores, to make sure it offers the most convenient experience for customers, upgrading equipment, meeting increasing customer demand for a service, or reducing a service which has become less popular. Customers still have the choice of paying through serviced tills, self-serve checkouts, and smart shop, it said.
0: And so now it's a pleasure to introduce someone who really needs no introduction, and he's our guest for Reflections this evening. Of course, it's David
5: Talbot. Thank you. The song, Christmas Comes But Once a Year, was from a 1936 animated film of the same name. The lyrics contain these words. Christmas comes but once a year. Now it's here, now it's here, bringing lots of joy and cheer. Tra-la-la-la, you and me and he and she and we are glad because, why, because, because, because there is a Santa Claus. Christmas comes but once a year, now it's here, now it's here, bringing lots of joy and cheer. Many people, though, are really pleased that Christmas does indeed come only once a year especially as Christmas does seem to start very early in the retail field. But having said that, it is a very important part of their business. This year, since the 1st of December, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and even adults, which may include some of you, have been opening each day a door on an Advent calendar. For many, there will have been and behind the doors waiting to be opened, a treat of a tiny piece of chocolate. Although I have seen large Advent calendars this year, one struck me very much. It was one containing lint chocolates, and they were the usual size. When I was growing up, and I imagine for most of you, and it was also the same for our sons, if you had an Advent calendar it did not contain a chocolate treat. Usually it was a picture reflecting something relating to Christmas. A star perhaps, or a Christmas tree, or a nativity scene, and occasionally there would be a text written telling part of the Christmas story. One such text might have been from the book of Isaiah in the Bible, where we find these words. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These beautiful words seem to have a particular resonance as I began my Advent and Christmas preparations this year the world is surely desperately in need of a wonderful counsellor and a Prince of Peace at this point in its history. Slade's Christmas song says this, Although now, so here it is. Merry Christmas. Everybody's having fun. Except, maybe not everybody is. Christmas can be a lot of fun, But not for the people of Ukraine, Russia, Palestine, Gaza, Israel and other places around the world where fighting is taking place. It's not fun either for the more vulnerable in our society, like older folk or others who are on their own. Those struggling with mental health issues or people putting on brave faces through family breakups. What about those people living on the streets? Then there are the families of over over 4 million children in poverty. And if they and others rely on food banks to get to the end of the month, Christmas can be a bit of a nightmare. So maybe not everyone's having fun. But perhaps what the world needs to know, and perhaps we need to remind ourselves of, is that, at Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Wherever we are, however we are feeling, whatever we are going through. Christmas isn't actually about the fun. It's about God coming into the world as Emmanuel, God with us, bringing real hope and meaning for all. Jesus Is God's Merry Christmas everybody to humanity? Will we make room in our lives for him this Christmas rather than consigned to leftover space whilst other things occupy our time and attention? May God bless you and those whom you love this Christmas and amidst the celebrations, remember that Jesus Christ is the reason for the season.
0: Thank you very much indeed, David, for those very timely and thoughtful words of reflection this evening. Thank you. And now it's time for the editor's piece, and I guess it's no surprise that this week we have a Christmas theme. We're going to turn to that staple of Christmas Day radio and television, the Monarch's Christmas broadcast. We'll look at why, when and how it came about, And you'll be able to listen to the very first one ever. The Christmas message was started by King Charles' great-grandfather, King George V. King George had reigned since 1910, and the BBC had a regular radio broadcasting service since late in 1922, but it was not for another decade that the king first delivered the first Christmas message. In fact, the BBC had approached him in 1922, shortly after the establishment of the organisation and the launch of the first regular BBC broadcasting service in November of that year. Sir John Reith, the powerful chair of the corporation, who has been considered the founding father of the BBC, approached the King about making a short broadcast. At first, King George declined. He believed that radio was designed for entertainment and election speeches. However, Queen Mary later came to believe that it would be useful for the king to speak to the empire, as it was then, via radio. So in 1932, the king finally agreed to make a short broadcast. The original idea for setting the broadcast Christmas was for John Reiths. In order to launch the BBC World Service though back then it was known as the Empire Service. Sir John's idea was to reach as many people as possible in what was then the British Empire, and Christmas seemed the best time to do it. The King visited the BBC in the summer of 1932 to learn more about the new medium, and agreed to take part. And so, on December 5th, 1932, King George V spoke on the wireless from a small office at Sandringham, two rooms at Sandringham were converted into temporary broadcasting rooms. The microphones at Sandringham were connected through post office telephone landlines to the control room at Broadcasting House. From there, connection was made to the BBC transmitters in the home service and to the Empire Broadcasting Station at Daventry with its six shortwave transmitters in order to reach radio sets across the globe. For the 1930s, it was a hugely complex technical process, but it worked. The time chosen was 3pm, the best time for reaching most of the countries in the Empire by short waves from the transmitters in Britain, and of course, it's still the time used today. In the event, the first broadcast actually started at 5 past 3 and lasted all of just over two minutes. The speech came at the end of a special programme all over the world, where British citizens from Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Gibraltar and the Irish Free State, as it was then, sent Christmas greetings. The broadcast made a huge impact on its audience and reached an estimated 20 million people. George V was impressed too and was said to be very pleased and much moved by the response. He made... A broadcast every christmas day after that until his death in 1936 now through the wonder of modern technology you can hear the very first christmas broadcast here's george V.
6: through one of the marvels of modern science i am enabled this christmas day to speak to all my peoples throughout the empire i take it as a good omen that wireless should have reached its present perfection at a time when the empire has been linked in closer union. For it offers us immense possibilities to make that union closer still. It may be that our future (coughs) will lay upon us more than one turn test. Our past will have taught us how to meet it unshaken. For the present, the work to which we are all equally bound is to arise at a reasoned tranquillity within our borders, to regain prosperity without self-seeking, and to carry with us those whom the burden of past years has disheartened or overborne. My life's aim has been to serve, as I might towards those ends. Your loyalty, your confidence in me, has been my abundant reward. I speak now from my home and from my heart to you all, to men and women so cut off by the snows, the desert, or the sea, that only voices out of the air can reach them. To those cut off from fuller life by blindness, sickness, or infirmity, and to those who are celebrating this day with their children and their grandchildren, to all, to each, I wish a happy Christmas. God bless you.
0: Well, now it's time for part two. And we begin, as usual, with news of the following deaths, which were reported in the Whitney Gazette this week. We're sorry to announce the following names and dates, and we offer our condolences at this time to friends and families. 17th of November, Jan Rosemary Strange. 27th of November, David William Hatt. 18th of November, Sandra Celeste Bocher. 30th of November, Edward Faraga. 3rd of December, Margaret Elizabeth Winfield. 8th of December, Pam Simpson. 10th of December, Pauline Seal. And finally, we're particularly sad to note the passing of one of our own listeners, Ida Ord. If you would like to attend her funeral service, it will be at 11.30 on the 10th of January, in the High Street Methodist Church, followed at the blue boar from one o'clock in the function room. Now let's go on to our regular quiz. And this time you have two sets of questions and answers from the last edition on the 7th of December. Good luck to you and to all our readers. Here's the first set. One, when did December become the month in which the birth of Christ is celebrated? Was it 4th century AD Tenth century AD or fifteenth century AD? Fourth. It was the fourth. It was the fourth indeed. Now, number two, which archangel visited Mary to tell her she'd give birth to Christ? Gabriel.
6: Gabriel.
2: Yep.
0: Archangel Gabriel. Which gospel has the fullest account of the nativity?
2: Luke.
0: It's, it's Luke, actually. Yep. Thank you for that. Which saint, and this is question number four, first set up a crib scene? Was it Joseph, Francis, or Nicholas? Francis. It was indeed Francis. Yep. And number five, when is the Feast of the Annunciation? It's in March. It's the 25th. 25th of March now the last time Bridget who was the editor last week also set an alternative quiz for those as she says who don't celebrate Christmas but enjoy the holiday and the goodwill so here it is question number one which continent is the original home of the Turkey America.
7: it's America America,
0: yeah America. Number two, what is a Christmas box?
4: Gifts from, to servants from the people who employed them.
0: Yep, that's absolutely correct. Um, again, uh, according to Bridget, on Boxing Day, boxes with food, gifts and sometimes cash were given to the servants and also sometimes to, to tradespeople. Number three, where does the Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square come from? Norway. 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 Number four, with which pagan cult is mistletoe associated? Druids. Yeah, it's druids. (laughs) And finally, number five, which ingredient is no longer put in mince pies?
2: Meat.
0: Yes yes. it's it's no longer they're no longer (laughs) mince pies they (laughs) are. It's fruit, obviously. Right. And now for this week's quiz, five questions, which is all about, well, you guessed it really, who played the male lead in that old Christmas TV favourite, It's a Wonderful Life? Number two, who brought the idea of the Christmas tree to England? And mystery question, you have two possible answers. Number three, Where will Charles and Camilla celebrate Christmas? Number four, how many ghosts show up in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Number five, the 19th century cook Eliza Acton was the first person to give a popular name to which traditional festive dish. Did she first name mince pies? or Christmas pudding, or Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Now we go back to our news, and we start with a piece about a charity mountain climb to raise money for visually impaired military veterans.
2: Ex-RAF man set to climb an African peak for charity. A former RAF serviceman from Whitney is set to scale Mount Kilimanjaro to support vision-impaired veterans in the UK. Oxfordshire's Ian Dewar, aged 57, will travel to Tanzania to start his journey to Africa's highest peak on January the 18th. The adventure will see him trekking six to eight hours every day, aiming to reach the 19,000 340-foot summit in just seven days. Mr Dewar said, It will take seven days to reach the summit. The slower you go up, the more chance you have of succeeding and not being affected by altitude sickness. I'll be walking around six to eight hours a day, and the final day will be a 15-hour spell. I was in the RAF for 33 years and have climbed a few mountains, but this will be the tallest The challenge has been inspired to Mr Dewar's experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic, when he and his partner volunteered to help the isolated in his community. During that stint, he encountered Norman, a 92-year-old blind veteran supported by Blind Veterans UK. Mr Dewar said, As we got to know Norman, It became apparent that the assistance he had received from Blind Veterans UK since being registered blind in 2013 had made an amazing difference in improving his quality of life. Norman joined the Navy at 16 in 1947 and served for nine years. He then had a 27-year career with the police service, He's now 92 and is my inspiration for taking on this challenge for Blind Veterans UK. In the run-up to the expedition, Ian completed a 100 kilometer spin bike challenge on November the 29th to raise funds for the charity. Norman visited the venue, cheering Mr Dewar and contributing a one kilometer spin himself. Mr Dewar said, it was a wonderful day and I was overwhelmed to have the support of those who jumped on a bike alongside me. To have Norman there meant a lot to me. I hope my efforts go some way to helping Norman and his fellow blind veterans. To support Mr Dewar in reaching his target for Blind Veterans UK, visit his Just Giving page at justgiving.com page slash ian hyphen Dewar. Mr Dewar has so far gathered £2,832 of his £5,000 goal, with Babcock International, his employer, backing him with £2,000. Blind Veterans UK supports thousands of blind veterans across the country. People who served in the armed forces, including the National Service, and are now struggling with sight loss, can visit the Blind Veterans website or call 0800 389 7979.
3: And now another fundraising story. Fate draws over 100 visitors to Care Home. A care home in Carterton has raised £500 through its Christmas fate, attracting over 100 visitors. MHA, the homestead, had a festive event involving staff, residents, and their families. The fete included classics such as a raffle, tombola and a variety of stalls, one of which was a knitting stall set up by a resident's wife. Staff members brought more fun to the fete, donning elf outfits and Christmas jumpers. Visitors were entertained with festive live music featuring Christmas classics. The homestead, which houses 68 residents, provides both res- regular residential and residential dementia care. Kirsty Ridley, one of the activity coordinators at the home, said the fate was really popular and we had a great time. We had plenty of things going on and it was a fate that was applicable to all ages. Even though we only had the fate for three hours, I feel we did really well. She added, we had plenty of support from our colleagues as well as the family members of our residents. There was some great feedback from the residents and everyone got stuck in and it was a real team effort. The funds raised will go towards the Residence Amenity Fund, which will be used for trips and activities. I want to thank everyone who came to the, support the fate. Without their support, we would not have been able to reach the figure that we did.
4: Abingdon and Whitney College has won a successful bid for Local Skills Improvement Fund, known as LSIF, <coughs> projects in Oxfordshire and Berkshire. The college, in partnership with seven local institutions, will now start delivering a range of skills development programmes for the county's businesses and communities. The colleges have jointly acquired £5 million, £2.5 million for each of the counties, to create, create, deliver and resource a variety of courses to cater for um, the county's future needs. The enterprise's aim is to enhance the skills of those currently in employment, covering areas such as green construction skills, electric vehicle maintenance, advanced digital skills and robotics. These plans are part of the government's ongoing blueprint for reaffirming the technical skills system to better address the Spread the funds of local, the needs of local labour markets. Mm. Local Skills Improvement Plans, LSIPS, have also been introduced, developing with the Thames Valley Chamber of Commerce in Oxfordshire and Berkshire, who has uh, informed the LSIF bid to the Department for Education. Jackie Cannon. Principal of Abingdon and Whitney College said the LSIF projects provide an excellent opportunity for the local FE colleges to continue working collaboratively on developing and delivering training solutions to local s- skills needs.
1: And back on the charity tip with this one. The headline is... Pair to take two thousand six hundred and fifty mile charity hike. A teacher and her partner are embarking on a two thousand six hundred and fifty mile hike from Canada to Mexico and are hoping to raise money for charity. Sarah Ellen Wooler, a former secondary school teacher at Bartholomew School, Ensham, and Richard Fletcher, ex head of surfacing at Williams F. One. Resigned from their long standing careers to tackle the Pacific Crest Trail, PCT, through the U.S. states of Washington, Oregon, and California and continuing south. Ms. Wooler and Mr. Fletcher chose to hike southbound from Canada to Mexico. To complete the journey, both individuals need- needed permits, which come with strong competition. The pair were fortunate to obtain their PCT permits with start dates just two days apart. Equipped with rucksacks weighing between 25 to 45 pounds, containing food and camping gear, the southbound expedition is a demanding endeavour. Teacher-turned-adventurer, Ms said, We've both climbed the managerial ladder and enjoyed the view... But now it was time to climb some other mountains. In the wake of personal and global events, including her sister's multiple sclerosis diagnosis and the COVID 19 pandemic, Ms. Woola and Mr. Fletcher decided to reevaluate their lifestyle. As such, they made the move of resigning from their jobs, focused on making the most of a five month break on the PCT. However, The trip isn't just about personal reflection, it's also a fundraising mission. Sarah is raising cash for three clauses close to her heart. She hopes to allocate 60% of the raised funds towards multiple sclerosis, MS, treatments for her sister, Amy. She also plans to distribute the rest of the funds, 20% each, between Bartholomew Young Carers and the MS Society. The fundraising campaign details are available via their blog at Fletch-LivesOnTheTrail.com where you can also follow their journey. Having started on June 26, 2023, Ms. Woola and Mr. Fletcher have only 180 miles remaining on the challenging trail. According to the Pacific Crest Trail Association, between 15% and 35% of hikers successfully navigate the 100 marathons-in-length trail. This massive undertaking is equivalent to Mount Everest's ascent 16 times and involves risks such as severe weather, dehydration and potentially deadly wildlife. Mr Fletcher is no stranger to daunting hikes, having already completed the Appalachian Trail, a total of 2,183 miles in 2014. With only 5% of PCT choo- hikers choosing the southbound route, the couple's venture is an extraordinary feat. Supporters can follow their journey and make a donation on their blog. And just to remind you, that is hyphen. Fletch- com.
2: Kiri, age nine, wins Council Chairs Christmas Card Competition. Nine-year-old Kiri has won a competition to design an official Christmas card for West Oxfordshire District Council. Her winning design, which features a festive tree decorated with Santa hats and presents, was chosen for its great design But also its well-chosen words inside. Kiri, from Tower Hill Community Primary School in Whitney, said, I thought that it wasn't worth entering the competition as I never win anything. The competition was launched by Councillor Andrew Coles, chairman of West Oxfordshire District Council. He said, I received some amazing designs for consideration. All the entries were brilliant and were extremely hard to judge because of the excellent standard. Kiri won the competition for not just a well-designed card, but also some very well-thought-out words we should all consider this Christmas, such as, kind, courage, and peace. Thank you, and well done to all the pupils who produced such wonderful designs. Kiri received a round of applause from her Townhill schoolmates when Mr. Coates' Coles presented her with a book token for a local bookshop during a school assembly. And I have a lovely photo of beaming Kerry holding her card together with Mr Coles, the, um, the chairman with his mayor's chain round his neck.
3: Energy saving upgrades for more homes. More West Stocksfordshire households may now be eligible for benefit from the Homes Upgrade Grant, HUG, scheme after a change in eligibility criteria. Government-backed grant is designed to aid homes to become more cost-effective and energy-efficient. The second phase of the HUG scheme helps owners, occupiers and private tenants who are living in poorly insulated properties to access free energy-saving measures worth thousands of pounds. These measures include insulation, solar panels and low-carbon heating systems. These upgrades would result in the reduction of household greenhouse gas emissions whilst making homes more affordable and healthier. Previously, only those households with a combined income below £31,000 could apply for the grant. However, this cap has been raised to £39,000 to changes in the grant which is being delivered by Oxfordshire County Council partnership with West Oxfordshire District Council and the Welcome the Warmth arrangement. Andrew Prosser of West Oxfordshire District Council said, Raising the income threshold for the home upgrade grant is very welcome news, supporting more West Oxfordshire households to access the energy-saving measures they need whilst reducing the impact those homes will have on the environment. To find out more, visit the Welcome the Warmth website or call 0800 038 6775.
4: Darren, Darren Goff is set to champion a new £75,000 grant dedicated to supporting rural English grassroots sports clubs. The former England fast bowler and Strictly Come Dancing winner is backing the GigaClear Rural Sports Club Fund. The funding is is targeted targeted at helping local entries in a network flourish, focusing on the acquisition of much needed sports equipment. Mr. Goff, now managing director of cricket at Yorkshire, is signed as a as a fund. Ambassador. He said local clubs offer valuable opportunities for people of all ages to enjoy the many benefits that come from playing sport. It can have a positive effect on mental health and physical well being, and who knows, it could also help nurture the aspirations of future English players, whether in football, rugby, or cricket. It is amazing just how much local clubs can to rely on parents and the wider community to stay afloat. This includes raising money to help for sports club equipment, which can often be prohibitively expensive. I'm really excited to be getting behind this initiative. Whitney RFC champion Bob Fisk said, Having Darren Goff... As ambassador for Gigaclear, Rural Sports Club Fund, is ideal because he's only a, not only a great sporting role model, but also someone who progressed from his local club to become on the world
0: stage. Now it's time for a festive notice board. If you like carols and Christmas music, there's a lot of it about over the weekend. First, if you can get tickets, there will be a concert of Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols, given by class-leading Oxfordshire Choir, Opus 48, at the University Church tomorrow. That's Friday, um, Friday evening, starting at 7pm. For further details and tickets, go to www.ticketsoxford.com. And there's another carol concert at St. Mary's Church in Kidlington by Chaos, the Kidlington Amateur Operatic Society, on Wednesday the twenty first of December. For details and tickets, call O one eight six five three seven five six one three. And then there are more carols and poems and Christmas readings by the Oxford Pro Musica singers in Keeble College Chapel on the 17th of December at 5 p.m. For details and tickets, call 07957 862570. Of course, lots of local churches will be holding their own carol service this Sunday. Ours is, for example, in Coombe. If you go along to any of these, have a wonderful time, and I hope there'll be mince pies afterwards. So that's nearly it for this week. But if you receive the USB sticks, you may notice that there are two memory sticks in your pouch this week, not one. One is the one you're listening to now, and the other is our Christmas magazine. The magazine stick does not have to be returned to us in the pouch so urgently as the normal news stick. Please take your time to listen and enjoy the items on the magazine stick, which hopefully will put you in the mood for Christmas and return the stick to us when you are ready. Finally, as, uh, uh, finally, there's a big thank you, which we uh, must offer to Mr. Downs for his kind donation this week, and also to Village Voices in Long Hanborough for their generous donation of £200, which will certainly go a long way to keeping us running next year. As well as listening to the USB sticks, uh, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including the magazines. Whitney Talking News is available online via our new and easier-to-use website, www.wtn.org.uk. And please remember to pass the details on to anyone who might like to listen to your weekly local news programme. And please keep listening at the very end of our programme tonight for an info infosound uh, in item which gives some highlights of this week's best radio listening and audio described TV. Finally, thank yous. First, a big thank you to David Sarbox for his thoughtful words and a big thanks to, to our recent readers tonight, Alison Granger, Anne Crawford, Andrew Delger, and, of course, Andrew James. Finally, another thank you to our support team, to Eric, who has recorded this session on our computer, and to our copiers and packers, Andrew and Nigel, who will be duplicating all the memory sticks later this evening. Last but not least, thanks to our volunteers, Angela James and Jenny Wiley, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks you have returned and keeping all our records in the register. This is the last edition for this year, and we will resume recording again on January the 5th, and you'll get your news stick, if that's what you listen to, Whitney Talking News via, over the following weekend. But in the meantime, for all of us here at Whitney Talking News, we wish you and your families a very Merry Christmas and a happy and peaceful New Year. So, from all of us,
7: Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas.
2: TNF soundings. Features from across the UK.
8: Now, for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, December 16th. And this week's Sound of Cinema explores the music of the greatest swashbuckling films from Hollywood's golden age, with music from scores including The Adventures of Robin Hood and The Mark of Zorro. Radio 3 for this, 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. In Signal Man, Emlyn Williams reads Dickens' Eerie Tale of a Railway Worker who's haunted by a spectre warning him of danger on the line. Radio 4 extra, 445. Well, Julian Barnes reads from his book The Man in the Red Coat, taking us on a rich, witty tour of Belle Époque Paris via the life story of the pioneering surgeon Samuel Posey. Radio 4 Extra, Saturday evening, 6.30. Well, talking about a revolution is a drama by Sarah Daniels. When Maya unearths new information about her aunt's death and the curious circumstances behind a car crash that happened more than 40 years ago, she becomes determined to find the truth. What she discovers opens up a murky world of radicalisation and revenge. Radio 4 for this one, 9pm. On to Sunday, December 17th, and much of the programming on Radio 3 is taken up with Christmas Around Europe, a feast of concerts of seasonal music broadcast from around Europe in the European Broadcasting Union's annual Christmas Music Day. Coverage starts at 9am and continues right throughout most of the day on Radio 3. The Radio Times' choice is Neil Gaiman's Chivalry, another chance to hear an adaptation of the 1992 quirky and sweet Christmas short story in which the late Glenda Jackson stars as Mrs Whittaker, who finds the Holy Grail in a charity shop. It's on Radio 4 at 9.30 on Sunday morning, 2.30 in the afternoon, or 8.30 in the evening if you'd prefer. Back to Sunday morning... And the castaway in Desert Island Discs is the actor, writer and director, Greta Gerwig. Radio 4, 11.15. Desert Island Discs Revisited is an edition from 97, in which the castaway was the late, great Glenda Jackson. Radio 4 Extra for that at 9pm. Alternatively, Moira Stewart's guest in Moira Stewart Meets is the tenor Alfie Bowe. Classic FM, 9 o'clock, Sunday evening. Onto programmes then that are broadcast at the same time, every day, Monday to Friday, same time, same radio station, all week, Monday to Friday. Book of the Week, Starborn, How the Stars Made Us and Who We Would Be Without Them, by cosmologist Roberto Trotter, exploring the ways in which our lives are intertwined with the stars and how we in the modern world retain our connection. Radio 4, 9.45 in the morning, all week. The ten-part dramatisation of The Remains of the Day, adapted from the 1989 Booker Prize-winning chronicle of A Servant's Lifetime of Service as a butler. Radio 4 Extra for this, at either 7 in the morning all week, 12 noon or 5pm, Monday to Friday, Radio 4 Extra. Composer of the week is Vaughan Williams, at Christmas. Radio 3, 12 noon. A Song Flung Up to Heaven, a dramatisation of the sixth of seven autobiographies by writer, poet and civil rights activist, Maya Angelou, covering the period between 1965 and 1968. Again, it's on all week, ready for Extra, at either 7.15 in the morning, 12.15 at lunchtime or 5.15 in the afternoon. Mythical Creatures is a ten-park journey across Britain to discover the origin stories of creatures of myth, legend, folklore and fantasy. Radio 4, 1.45 all week. Book of Bedtime continues the reading of The Happy Couple by Nase Dolan. 10.45 each night, Radio 4. Alternatively, in the series The Essay, The Story of Puddings, exploring five of the world's favourite desserts, starting on Monday, with Tapioca, Radio 3, 10.45 all week. So on to the individual programmes then, for the rest of the week, leading up to Christmas, Monday, December 18th. Today's drama, a wireless war, marking a 100 years of BBC radio drama. At the outbreak of war in 1939, the BBC evacuated its newly formed radio drama company of actors to Worcestershire, where they faced the challenge of recording a play in the stables of a Victorian stately home. Radio 4 for this fascinating drama, 215 The music quiz counterpoint continues on Radio 4 at 3 on Monday. While the patch, the presenter, visits the village of Blackford near Glen Eagles in the latest episode of this series, Radio 4, 4 4.30. While the popular panel game, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, continues on Radio 4 at 6.30. Tuesday, December 19th, and the Life Scientific celebrates 300th episode with Jim Al-Khalili, talking to this year's Royal Institution Lecturer, Mike Waldridge, Professor of AI at the University of Oxford. Radio 4, 9am. In the series Seven Deadly Psychologies, ahead of time of eating, drinking and being merry, the programme discusses the consequences of gluttony. Radio 4 at 11am. The Culinary Panel Show, The Kitchen Cabinet, is on Radio 4 at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. While the Big League is the story of the man versus fat football leagues, in which men with a BMI over 27.5 come together to play football to lose weight and talk about their mental health. The team that loses the most weight in each league season actually wins the trophy. Radio 4, 4 o'clock on Tuesday. Uninsurable Planet explores the fortunes of people living in areas now deemed uninsurable thanks to climate change and asks whether pressures from the insurance industry could influence governments to take a more aggressive action on Climate Change, Tuesday night, Radio 4, 8pm, and it's followed, as always on a Tuesday, with Peter White presenting his regular programme for blind and partially sighted listeners, In Touch, Radio 4, 8.40pm. Wednesday, December 20th, and the Hidden History of the Wall looks at what walls can reveal about how people live, from Iron Age roundhouses to Victorian mansions, and the way walls have defined living spaces since medieval times. Radio 4, 11.30am. The drama is Tess of the Tollbooth by Ali Sparks. The night shift toll booth worker Tess is stuck in a rut, but regular bridge-crosser Rob could be the remedy. As New Year looms, Tess is looking for a change. Radio 4, Wednesday afternoon, 2.15. Choral Evensong comes from Norwich Cathedral on Wednesday, Radio 3, 4pm. Paul Temple and the Alex Affair is the last of the 1938-1968 to 1968 radio whodunits by Francis Durbridge, featuring amateur detective Paul Temple and his sidekick wife Louise. Radio 4 Extra for this at 4pm. While In Tune Christmas Special comes from the BBC Radio Theatre with Katie Derham and Sean Rafferty, introducing Christmas gems from performers including cellist Natalie Klein, folk singer Cara Dillon, pianist Ian Farrington and the BBC Singers. The In Tune Christmas Special, Radio 3, 5 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. Thursday, December 21st and the 12 Days of Christmas is a drama from 1994 about the feud between a pair of family-run ice cream businesses on a seaside pier. Radio 4 Extra for this, 10am or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Building Back Better is the second of two Crossing Continents programmes on the subject of Ukraine. Western donors have pledged billions to help rebuild the country, but will the money be well spent in a country with high corruption levels? Radio 4, Thursday morning, 11am. Christmas Night, with Dr. Evadne Hinge and Dame Hilda Brackett. It's a 1983 festive edition of the comedy starring George Logan and Patrick Pfeiffer as the Suffolk Village musical duo and lifelong companions. Radio 4 Extra for a smile at 1.30 in the afternoon or 6.30 at night. Open Country looks at the links between landscape and music and learns about the extraordinary cluster of musicians who were associated with Gloucester Cathedral in the early part of the 20th century. This is on Radio 4, Open Country, at three o'clock on Thursday. Or well, Christmas with Gareth Malone is the first of two live Christmas specials in which the popular choir master shares an eclectic mix of seasonal music. The programme continues at the same time on Friday. It's on Radio 3 on Thursday... 5 o'clock, Christmas with Gareth Malone. And lastly, Friday, December 22nd, Juliet Stevenson stars in a dramatisation of P.L. Travis's short stories about Mary Poppins. Radio 4 Extra at 10 a.m. or 3 p.m. Gardner's Question Time features Christmas themed questions from the archive on Radio 4 at 3 o'clock. In The Great Chocolate Murders, Obsession, Bad Drains, Royalty, Murder and Chocolate all figure in John Fletcher's play based on a true story of a mysterious widespread illness in 19th century Brighton. Ready for Extra for this at 4 o'clock. In the series Screenshot, Double Axe explores the origins, legacy and evolution of the double act across film and TV, both in front and behind the camera. Radio 4, 7.15 on Friday followed by the News Review of the Year, a special episode of the Today podcast in which Rajan and Nick Robinson discuss some of the biggest stories of 2023 on Radio 4 at 8pm. Well, lastly, as we head into the Christmas weekend, Christmas by Candlelight with Seb Sones in a concert of festive favourites recorded at St Martin's in the Fields, London. 8 o'clock, Classic FM. That's it. Thank you to Wendy for the highlights this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe, and enjoyable one of radio listening.
2: TNF Soundings.
5: TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK.
7: Now for the audio described television programmes for the week starting Saturday the 16th and ending Friday the 22nd of December 2023. Compiled by John and read by Lizzie. So let's start with Saturday. Gordon Buchanan watches as the wolves go hunting. Snow Wolf family and me on BBC Two at 11 this morning. The afternoon film today is a spy thriller. Harry is plunged into the world of counter-espionage as he uncovers a brain drain among scientists. The Ipcrest File is on BBC Two at one o'clock. How about seeing how magi-zoologist Newt Scarmander tries to catch and escape magical menagerie. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is the feature film on ITV1 at 5.30. A group of British pensioners try to make their pennies go further by spending their retirement in what they believe to be a luxury hotel in Jaipur. The best exotic marigold hotel is on BBC Two at 10 past 7. Survivor reaches its conclusion today. The first part of the finals features a tricky immunity challenge before the 14th person is voted off. This is on BBC One at 6pm. Then after Strictly, more of that soon, the grand final of Survivor who can endure the last immunity challenge for the longest time. Someone will walk away with a £100,000. Find out who it is on BBC One starting at five past nine tonight. Then in another final, the three remaining couples perform free routines in a bid to become this year's champions. Strictly come dancing on BBC One at 7. As the horror of the Normandy landings takes its toll, three brothers lie dead. Captain Miller is sent on a special mission in occupied France to bring the fourth brother, Private Ryan, home, no matter what the cost. Saving Private Ryan is on Channel 4 at 9pm. On to Sunday the 17th. Find out what key politicians and public figures think in Sunday with Laura Koonsberg at nine this morning on BBC One. Bargain Hunt from Nottingham is on BBC One at 12 noon. Following on from yesterday's film, Sunny is worried that one of the new arrivals is a hotel inspector. The second-best exotic Marigold Hotel is on BBC 2 at 5.25. There's a massive cast list, including Cher, Rick Astley, Paloma Faith, the cast from Sister Act and Lucy, the winner of Channel 4's The Piano. Also, a celebration of Disney's 100th anniversary and a tribute to Bill Kenwright, who died in October. Royal Variety Performance is on ITV1 at 8 tonight. Amy and Elisa come face-to-face with the distant group at the heart of the investigation and are instructed to help them infiltrate the base. Part 3 of Vigil is on BBC One at 9. Also at 9, what happened after Conan Doyle killed off the sleuth he had come to loathe? Killing Sherlock Lucy Worsley on the case of Conan Doyle is on BBC Two at 9. Now programmes that are on at the same time and same channel each weekday. All the following programmes are on BBC One. Frontline Fight Back at 10.45. Homes Under the Hammer at 11.15. Bargain Hunt at 12.15. Father Brown at one forty-five, but not on Thursday or Friday. Escape to the Country at 3pm. Ricky and Ralph's Very Northern Road Trip at 3.45. Now for other channels. Dickinson's Real Deal on ITV1 at 2pm. Heartbeat at 6.55pm on ITV3. Christmas University Challenge on BBC2 at 8.30 in the evening. The soaps are on their usual channels at their usual times. Looking now at Monday, the 18th of December. Meatloaf, sculptor Grinling Gibbons, England's World Cricket, and the poetry of Gerald Manley Hopkins all feature in the specialist rounds of Mastermind on BBC Two at 7.30. An army of volunteers and some members of the EastEnders cast help Nick Knowles transform a caretaker's house in Harlow, Essex, into a space where anyone can go for help. DIY SOS, EastEnders Special, is on BBC One at 8. There's food on the menu on Channel 4. What do you do with the leftovers from Christmas? And can they be used to fill the gap between Christmas and New Year? That is what Jamie Oliver is doing in part two of Jamie's Christmas Shortcuts on Channel 4 at 8. Then, the UK's fourth largest supermarket is preparing for 2023, their biggest Christmas yet. Aldi's Christmas Secrets is on Channel 4 at 9. There's a drama based on real events starting at 9. Melissa has a mansion, luxury cars, a designer wardrobe and a loyal clientele who trust her to invest their money. But secretly, she is running a huge Ponzi scheme, ripping off friends and family, including her own parents. To keep the scam going, she must stay one step ahead of the authorities and a criminal heavyweight. Vanishing Act is on ITV1 at 9. And now for Tuesday the 19th. The finest family film ever made in Britain features three Edwardian children as they relocate to Yorkshire with their mother following their father's wrongful arrest. The Railway Children is on BBC2 at 2.40 this afternoon. Marcus wants to reintroduce seahorses, but his plans hit a snag, while Ian is hoping to breed fried egg jellyfish. And then they get a surprise visit from the Princess of Wales. Secrets of the Aquarium is on BBC2 at 6.13. Dave gets a cancer diagnosis, so it looks to be all over for his cookery travels. But now he's back with C, searching for the ingredients to create a festive feast to thank the doctors and nurses who helped with his treatment. The Hairy Bikers, Coming Home for Christmas, is on BBC Two at 9. Melissa's world comes crashing down when the financial authorities make a dawn raid on her house. She is ordered to hand in her passport and appear in court in two days' time. Does she stay with her family or run for it? Banishing Act continues on ITV1 at 9. How do you stay ahead in the Christmas biscuit market? Find out in Inside McVitie's at Christmas on Channel 4 at 9. Amy is left scrambling for answers after recent events, but when she realizes the full extent of the conspiracy, is she prepared to risk everything to find those responsible? Find out in the concluding part of the Jill, on BBC One at 9. On to Wednesday the 20th of December. Tim and Sonia moved into Tim's childhood home to care for his elderly mother before she passed away. Tim is ready for a fresh start while Sonia thinks they can begin the next chapter of their lives here. This new series of Kirsty and Phil's Love It or List It starts on Channel 4 at 8. Mel Blatt, Duncan James, Richard Blackwood and Theo Winter are tasked with creating a dish that represents Christmas in Australia. Find out how they get on in Celebrity Masterchef Christmas Cook-Off on BBC One at Nine. There's a BAFTA-winning feature film on BBC Two. Nine-year-old Buddy finds himself confronted with the ugly reality of sectarian conflict in Belfast. The film is Belfast and is on BBC Two at nine. Melissa disappears into thin air, leaving her husband, friends and family distraught, before the news emerges that she has betrayed them all. The victims are trying to rebuild their lives when one of her trainers washes up on a lonely island 300 miles away, with her decomposing foot still inside. How did it get there? The concluding part of Vanishing Act is on ITV1 at 9. How about ending the day with a swashbuckling fantasy action film? Jack Sparrow embarks on a quest to track down the Trident of Poseidon, only for Captain Salazar to lead an undead crew in revenge against the pirate who killed him, Jack Sparrow. Pirates of the Caribbean, Salazar's Revenge, is on BBC One at 10.14. Thursday the 21st, Nigella Lawson travels to Amsterdam The Venice of the North where she has family ties and fond memories. She visits a sweet store with a licorice niche and a chip shop with queues that stretch around the block. Nigella's Amsterdam Christmas is on BBC One at eight. Cockapoo Bella is expecting puppies. Andy, Vicky and daughter Ava are looking forward to welcoming the new additions. A scan shows healthy puppies, but complications soon arise. Fur Babies on Channel 4 at 8. Toya Wilcox, Hamid Anemashon, Kerry Godliman, and Jessica Knappett tackle a twist on a Christmas stocking pattern before they transform puffer jackets into food-themed fancy dress. In The Great British Sewing Bee. Celebrity Christmas Special on BBC One at Nine. Did you watch Vanishing Act? Well, what really happened? The documentary explores the disappearance of the Australian fraudster and examines the plight of some other of victims in this modern-day tale of deceit with millions of dollars still unaccounted for. The real Vanishing Act, Missing Millionaires, on ITV1 at 9. Finally, to Friday the 22nd of December, the remains of the largest dinosaur ever found is examined in Attenborough and the Giant Dinosaur on BBC1 at 1.45pm. Flambeau is incarcerated under suspicion of murder But he denies everything. The Penitent Man is the first of tonight's Father Brown stories at 8pm. In the second story, a saboteur tries to stop Kembleford from winning a choir competition. The Celestial Choir is on at 9. Both these programmes are on the Drama Channel. Mum wants a classic Christmas, but how to create it? Well, this madcap sitcom might provide the answer. No promises. Here We Go is on BBC One at 8.30. There's a biographical drama featuring the lives of Patrizia Rigiani and Maurizio Gucci, who married and then over the next decade became more ambitious while their marriage begins to fray. With the Gucci company's fortunes in the balance, events take a turn for the deadly. House of Gucci is the feature film on BBC Two at Nine. Michelle invites the neighbours round for a Chinese feast. As they wait for their food to arrive, Eric shares his love for Billy Conley. Two Doors Down continues... On BBC One at 9.30. I hope you find something of interest this week.
6: DNF Soundings.